Tennessee is burning, the abortion pill in the dock, and the Ukraine document leaks. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael, Brendan, Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is the Competitive Enterprise Institute. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim Garrity, we've had this drama in Tennessee a week and a half or so ago, there was a protest, one of these typical kind of left-wing protests. We've seen them in Wisconsin, I think maybe in Texas as well. A bunch of uh, student protesters yelling from the balcony, disrupting the proceedings. And you had two Democratic legislatures, uh, young black guys with, with, bull, with a bullhorn there passing back and forth, egging on these protesters. There was a, a, a white woman who kind of awkwardly, Charlie's going to re- reject this analogy, so my apologies, Charlie, but was kind of the Ringo star of the operation. She was just sort of standing there. She actually didn't do anything. She didn't shout. She didn't take the bullhorn. But th- this was a serious breach of the rules and of the, the operation of this representative institution, and the Republicans expelled them. And predictably, they are now total martyrs. They're doing national TV shows every single uh, morning uh, and afternoon and evening. They're going to get reinstated by the uh, the, the uh, city councils or, or the bodies that are responsible for um, selecting a, a replacement when there's a vacancy and then very likely win their special elections and just slide back like nothing happened, except for they'll be much more famous. What do you make of it? Rich, I'm going to begin with a Charlie-esque pause. My microphone did not fail. I am simply gathering my thoughts. Uh, at that, the risk that was awkward. Of, uh, that was awkward when you did it, Jim. Uh, um, at the risk of previewing my lighter item, it is difficult to express how much I enjoyed not thinking about this story last week when I was on vacation and how much I do not enjoy thinking about this sequence of events uh, now that we are taping the podcast because these two lawmakers got everything they wanted. In fact, they got everything they wanted and more. They are now, you know, at least for the moment, national celebrities. They're probably getting their 15 minutes of fame. Uh, it's fair to wonder whether anyone will really remember much about them three months from now, six months from now, and things like that. But for now, they they are the cause of the moment amongst the Democratic Party. Uh, Harris came there. As, as far as most Democrats are concerned, these two guys are really the biggest victims to, uh, of the entire sequence of events down there in Tennessee. Never mind all those people who got shot. Never mind all those kids who got killed. No, no, no. It's these two lawmakers. But in my absence, it apparently seems like the bad habits of the, Republic, of the Republican Party got worse and that they took their stupid pills and now they feel this need that when you are confronted with two lawmakers who want attention, and make no mistake, there are a lot of atten- lawmakers in this world who really don't care that much about actually getting legislation passed. They don't really, they're not that into that stuff. That's work. That requires making deals. That requires making meetings. That requires figuring out what your colleagues can stand for, what they can't stand for, and what kind of horse trading you have to do to get the, the deal done. 
That's exhausting. You know what's fun? Throwing a tantrum in front of cameras. Oh my good, that! You get to stay a pound and do all that kind of stuff. Did this warrant some sort of reaction? Sure, censure would have been fine. And censure would have been better because it wouldn't have given these guys. But now, you know, we're expelling you. Well, now they get to play the victim. And they get to accuse the Republican majority. Like, why are these guys doing this stunt with the bullhorns? Because they don't have any actual real power. They can't pass legislation. They can't get stuff done. And yet, by doing so, by just choosing to expel them, the Tennessee Republican Party, those other legislators in the state legislature decided to give them everything they want. And now, with these guys getting reinstated, the Republican Party, like, they've, they've empowered their enemies and really gotten, or, or opponents, and gotten really nothing out of this entire ordeal. So MBD, I think clearly a punishment was called for, but censure, as Jim points out, or stripping them of the committee assignments, something less than expulsion would have been appropriate. And then they had this this other problem, and you know I have a lot of sympathy for them. They're, they're being smeared over this. But you had the, the two um, black guys, Jones and Pearson, and then this the six-year-old former teacher, white woman, Gloria Johnson, and they they voted to expel the two black guys and voted not to expel her very narrowly. I think she maybe survived by one vote. And that that was defensible on the merits. Her, her conduct wasn't quite as egregious as theirs. As I say, she was just kind of along for the for the ride. But of course, this is being made into a, a race thing. You know, it's a lynching and all the rest of it. And, and Gloria Johnson's playing into it. You know, she's she herself says the only reason possibly that I wasn't expelled as well is because I'm a white woman and they're young black men. Yeah, I mean, that's like never bet against the GOP, you know, making a kind of stupid, like an optically stupid decision like that. Um, that was very easy. Um, you know, like I, I have to say, I'm tired though of just saying the obvious, which is like, you know, the GOP is being un, unfairly accused here when, when Democrats storm, and take over a legislature illegally, people say, the press says, this is democracy in action. When Republicans do it, they say this is a threat to democracy. When Republicans enforce the rules of a legislative chamber, it's a threat to democracy. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like, you can't win that that game. Um, so it's it's stupid to play it. Um, I mean, I, I honestly, I thought that the, the two legislators got what they deserved. It's uh, as far as the punishment was concerned. It's just that it came comes along with this fake uh, hero reputation afterwards. Um, yeah, one of the guys is a, a an activist and ha has a history of obnoxious behavior. I think he threw a cup of coffee at some re Republican legislatures during a protest. But Charlie, there's definitely this this hypocrisy. What happened in Tennessee? It's not January six. Like cops weren't um, beaten up and the, the protesters weren't on the on the floor, but is just being portrayed as, as a nice, peaceful protest, part of the workings of democracy, the interrupting of the work of a representative institution. And obviously, if the shoe were on the other foot, it wouldn't be portrayed like this at all. The press believes in nothing. And the Democratic Party believes in nothing. That's my takeaway. And I think Republicans should internalize that. I'm not going to criticize the Tennessee Republican Party here because ultimately you end up saying perhaps Republicans should have changed their tactics 
given that the press is corrupt. Well, the press shouldn't be corrupt. Look, I think I have enough credibility on this issue. I repeat, every time we talk about January 6th or the 2020 election, that Donald Trump lost and then he tried to stage a coup. I'm no sympathizer of that sort of behavior. I want less of it, not more. I think the people who engage in that sort of behavior should be arrested and imprisoned if they're a private citizen, or if it's done within the context of a legislature, they should be expelled, or in Donald Trump's case, impeached. And I think that whether the people doing it are Republicans or Democrats, if you want less of this stuff, which I do, you have to punish it. And what I saw last week was gaslighting. As Michael said, the argument here is that if Republicans or Republican voters interrupt a legislative proceeding, then that is an affront to democracy. And if Republicans respond to Democrats interrupting a legislative proceeding, then that's an affront to democracy. That is Calvin Ball. I read this morning that Democrats in Maryland are demanding an apology because in the House of Delegates, I believe it's called, Republicans lost their tempers yesterday after the Democrats made a maneuver of which the Republicans disapproved and started shouting. Well, I don't want the Republicans in Maryland to behave like that either. But you've got to pick one. And it doesn't matter that January 6th was much worse, which it was. Just pick one. Because all I see is manipulation here. I see manipulation and narrative building and lies. There was an Axios piece about what happened in Tennessee that was 750 words long. And at no point did it mention or imply or even hint at why these legislators were expelled. It just said protest. Barack Obama said it's an American tradition to protest. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Chuck Schumer said it's an American tradition to protest. That is a lie. Protest is fine. This was not protest. Legislators have rules for a reason. It is not acceptable to interrupt the proceedings of the legislative body, pull people onto the floor, and shout through a bullhorn. We all know this. So yeah, this really pissed me off. It pissed me off in part because the last two years, I've stood in front of people and said things they didn't want to hear. People on my side. People have booed me for saying it. Trump was wrong. The January 6th protesters were wrong. The lawmakers who acquiesced and encouraged them were wrong. There should have been consequences. There should have been more consequences than there were. We can't behave like this. We have a system that we're supposed to uphold. And the first hint at the other side doing it, and not only is it treated differently, the people who did it become celebrities. That guy, I think it's Pearson, that guy was followed on live national television from a helicopter walking back to the state house in Tennessee. For goodness sake. 
So, next question to you, MBD. Your guess is after the settles out, they're reinstated. Uh, I believe the rule is they, they can't be re-expelled until the next session or something like that, that we won't hear about these guys again. Or you think there's real star potential there and one or both will become the equivalent of a Stacey Abrams, you know, won't, won't win any elections, obviously, because uh, she didn't, at least not at the state level, but uh, become a thing, you know? Like Wendy, yeah, I'm going to rate them a future Wendy Davis. Right, the the Texas legislator with the right kind of a, pink, a, a no uh, hoper who sneakers. who is a, a a cause for a while. Yeah, Kim Garrity. I think these guys will get a they'll they'll be the flavor of the month for a while. I, I think the problem is is that every other Democratic state legislator who looks in the mirror and sees bigger and better offices in their future will emulate their tactics. We'll see similar disruptions of legislative procedures and stuff like that. And uh, there'll be a law of diminishing returns. It'll become less special or less unique. Everybody will start bringing a bullhorn to the floors of state legislatures, and then it just won't be a big deal anymore. And they'll have to find, you know, the the ambitious among them will have to find some other new innovative way to disrupt proceedings. Charlie? I still hope that this is one of those instances in which the press goes all out lionizing a particular set of people or figure or movement and the voters in the state still hate them. And we've seen this before. We saw this with the riots in the summer of 2020. All of that celebration and bolstering and rule-changing in the press, people hated it. The defund the police movement that resulted probably cost the Democrats a bunch of Senate seats and a bunch of House seats as well in 2020. I'm not convinced that people are going to respond to these guys. And we've had this sort of behavior before. We saw it, for example, in Wisconsin when Scott Walker was governor and was passing some of the more controversial from the perspective of the left reforms did that help the democrats or did it hurt them by all accounts it hurt them so as cross as i am about this coverage in part because i live in an ecosystem i have to coexist with the people who were doing this i don't think there is going to be some mass movement in tennessee that is moved by this and i think we're more likely to see the opposite Yes, I hope you're right, Charlie. I kind of like MBD's prediction of a Wendy Davis-like future for for one or both of these guys. I hate to say it, but I think the Justin Pearson guy uh, has some has some charisma. He gave, by the way, one of the craziest Easter sermons I have ever heard at this Unitarian Universalist uh, church. Just just wild stuff. So with that, let's pause and hear from our sponsor of this episode, our great friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. As Americans deal with rising prices, record inflation, and fears of a looming recession, President Biden's Federal Trade Commission, under the direction of Chair Lena Khan, is pursuing anti-consumer, anti-competitive measures against American industries, killing innovation and threatening America's dynamic 21st century economy. And the worst part, American taxpayers are footing the bill for bureaucrats of the FTC to threaten to break up businesses and stop mergers and acquisitions. 
That's why the Competitive Enterprise Institute launched their Eye on FTC campaign, exposing abuses of power at the FTC, calling on Congress to reassert oversight over this rogue agency and protecting consumers from government overreach. CEI is defending free markets and American capitalism, which are the greatest forces for peace and prosperity the world has ever known. To learn more, visit IonFTC.com. That's E-Y-E-O-N. FTC.com and consider helping CEI stop abuses of power at the FTC. This is an agency that is genuinely out of control, and this is a very important initiative. So please check it out. So, Charlie, another thing roiling our politics we have these dueling decisions on the abortion pill. We have a judge in Texas saying this 20-year-old approval by the FDA of the abortion bill uh, does not pass muster and and joining it nationally. And you have a uh, another judge saying, nope, it's, uh, it's completely fine. And you have progressives predictably saying, you know what the Biden administration should do? Defy the law. All right, well, let's take those one by one. It is grimly amusing to watch one judge issue a nationwide injunction to the displeasure of the president and see everyone reverse the positions that they held four or five years ago when a judge in Hawaii was jumping in every time Donald Trump did anything Uh, a lot of the people who are now complaining about this structurally at the time were quite happy to see nationwide injunctions i am not per se bothered by nationwide injunctions if we have a nationwide issue i understand why this upsets people but there are potential pitfalls to not having nationwide injunctions where one has a matter of federal law what are we going to do we're going to have different administration in a hundred different places on the merits i suspect that the decision that progressives dislike will not stand up this is an area of law that i know very little about But it was pointed out that the Supreme Court has heard similar cases in recent years, specifically to do with the judicial superintendents of FDA rules. And both Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito were skeptical. As such, I think if it goes to the Supreme Court, the injunction will be lifted. And that is, of course, what should happen. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calling for the Biden administration to ignore the courts is a rejection of our constitutional system and should be treated as such. This is another good example of what I was just talking about with regards to Tennessee. Imagine if that were Marjorie Taylor Greene, who had gone on television and said that the President of the United States should ignore the Supreme Court. Do you think the people sitting next to her would have just nodded? Do you think you would have seen tweets such as the one we saw from Abby Phillip that just casually noted, oh, AOC says that the president should ignore the courts. That's interesting. Ron Wyden said that the other day as well. 
maybe do your job and point out that that is crazy. I don't wish to imply, for the record, that Republicans never do this. They do. Ted Cruz did it after the Obergefell decision. But when Republicans do it, it is immediately recognized for what it is, which is a a demagogic and unacceptable rejection of the constitutional separation of powers. The politics of this, I think, are bad for Republicans. The public is not, unfortunately, where pro-lifers are. And to most people, they're not going to get involved in the legal question and who aren't, unlike me, primarily interested in the structural issues, they're going to hear that one judge has potentially banned these drugs that I suggest a majority supports. So, no, I don't think it's particularly good for Republicans to have this issue out there hanging around, uh, but uh, we just have to wait for this to work itself out. When you have a 50-year-old Supreme Court case overturned and a federal law that was written in, what, 1870? Is that the Comstock Act? You're going to have weird legal ramifications pop up, and this is one of them. Jim? So we can complain and we should complain about Democrats who suddenly decide after spending all of last week, no man is above the law. Trump was indicted and the law applies to all of us. Doesn't matter if you like the law. Doesn't matter if you think the law is wrong. Doesn't matter if you believe, as Mr. Bumble said in Oliver, the law is an ass. No, no, no. You have to obey the law. Except now a judge makes a ruling. Yeah, we can just ignore it. The hell with it. Doesn't matter. Ignore you. How many divisions does that judge have? That judge could issue his ruling. Now let him try to enforce it. Now, it's bad enough that Democrats do this. Having said that, I am unnerved to find that Congresswoman Nancy Mace, who represents South Carolina, in fact, the quarter of South Carolina where I spent last week, uh, suggested the Food and Drug Administration should just ignore the Texas judge's recent ruling, suspending approval of that abortion bill, Uh, arguing the court lacks legitimate oversight of the federal agency when it comes to drug approval. It's bad enough when this comes from Democrats. I don't like seeing this from Republicans. I don't like seeing this idea that, oh, if we don't like a a judicial ruling, we can just ignore it. Because if that's the rule, the Trump administration would like a do-over on a whole bunch of decisions that were all kinds of injunctions that were issued by judges in Hawaii and on the West Coast and places like that. Look, if, they want to, if Democrats want to have a discussion about whether it makes sense to have a system where one federal judge can issue an injunction that undoes an entire policy of the executive branch, we can have that discussion. But alluding to what you know, Charlie said earlier, if you're going to have whatever the rules are, it's got to be the same way for both parties. It's got to be the same way for administrations of Republicans and administrations of Democrats. That's not what they're interested in doing here. Um, I would also kind of note that seeing, again, I'm disappointed by this attitude by by Nancy Mason and kind of the continuing theme through all of our topics this week is the Republican Party, um, once again, seems to be caught flat-footed, seems to be, uh, you know, flailing for answers, not sure how to talk about the issue, not sure what policy it actually wants. And all of this is inexcusable now that we are close to, you know, we're approaching a year after the, uh, the repeal of Roe versus Wade. The Republican Party is the pro-life party. You'd think they would know how they feel 
about abortion pills. You think they'd have, know how they, whether they believe it should be legal, whether it should be up to states, how it should actually work. But no, no, we can't do that. We're too busy yelling about, you know, whatever's on social media or something like that. Um, the Republican Party is a largely dysfunctional party right now, and it is just failing at the basic blocking and tackling of politics, um, in part because it's become a very much a cult of personality. So, MBD, what do you make of that? It was very notable. I, I think the one of the few Republicans with a national profile who said anything about this ruling was Mike Pence, who who uh, said, yeah, the FDA got it wrong 20 years ago. Everyone else mumbled and looked at their shoes. Yeah, and good for Mike Pence for having at least some position on it and, and announcing it. I'm not sure I agree with Jim that this is I mean, Trump's fault, right? That this, this cult of personality. Um, you know, Trump <laughs> in his campaign actually was the first Republican to articulate out loud what Republican, what many pro-life Republican voters wanted, which is, I will appoint judges who will overturn Roe v. Wade. I mean, that's what he said and promised. He didn't fudge it with euphemisms about balls and strikes or, uh, you know, hide it one layer behind constitutionalism. Um, you know, uh, he didn't, he didn't hide what he was about in that campaign. Um, I don't know if he still holds to that <laughs> in now, but, um, no, the Republican party has never been, the elected Republican party has always been in the back seat on the abortion issue, uh, compared to the activists, uh, and the, uh, the federal, the Federalist Society, the judges, uh, and elected Republicans have always refused essentially to, to step up to the plate on this. And until this, uh, until Dobbs has, has, you know, forced some of them to do so. Unfortunately, they're all doing it in the most reluctant shuffling, mm -hmm. bumbling way possible. Yeah. So Charlie Cook, next question to you, what we're seeing and what will actually develop will be a soft surrender by Republicans on the issue of abortion, yes or no? Well, at what level? Federal. Yes, but this Comstock Act notwithstanding, the federal government ought to have nothing to do with abortion. So that wouldn't bother me. I would be alarmed if Republicans surrendered at the state level, which is where they said for 50 years this question constitutionally belonged. Jim Gearty. Yeah, I still think that, yes, the short answer is yes, and they will manage to do it in a fairly self-destructive manner. MBD. Um... It's wow, that, that was an impressive sigh. Yeah, it's a tem it's a temporary it's a temporary it's a temporary surrender. Um and it is because there's a um uh, Republicans at the national level won't recover their voice in this issue until they have a presidential nominee to determine it for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and Trump seems to just think this issue is a, a loser. I mean, he 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 hasn't said anything basically, right, about about anything abortion related. Yeah, he, he he's avoided Dobbs. He he has avoided it uh, very uh, expansively, and I think there's I think there is a reason for that. I mean, I think we're already seeing the Republican Party uh, 
this divide between conservative suburbanites who are all in on DeSantis and then rurals and downwardly mobile white voters who are all in on Trump. And the fact is, middle-class suburbanites tend to be also middle-class traditionalists in morality and social issues, including abortion. And the rurals and downwardly mobile whites are more along the kind of barstool, kid rock style culture war issues and, and not as motivated by anti-abortion uh, rhetoric. And so I think Trump is, in, is um, in, in a sense, playing to, to his, his electoral base, his strength. Uh, whereas in the in the campaign in 2016, 2016 and 2015, he made this dynamic and very explicit effort to make an explicit quid pro quo alliance with evangelical voters through the 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 list of nominees to the Supreme Court. Um, but that's so already there, had, there that's, had been speculation that DeSantis was just what was it was it a 15 week fifteen week ban that was on the books. In Florida, and that he's just going to be happy to take that and not not really talk about it or drive it further. But now he's signed a, a six week. Yep. Yeah, he has, and I'm, and t- to be honest, like I I applaud the law um, because if you're only banning abortions after 15 weeks, I mean mm-hmm. you're really letting 95 percent of abortions remain legal. Um, doing it after six weeks considerably changes things. Uh, in the right direction. However, I think it could hurt him in a general election. I think just, it will hurt a, him in a general election too. I would just know it probably will pass and be signed, but it hasn't been signed. Oh, yeah, okay, it's sorry. just been introduced for the first time on the floor. There's so many victories in Florida, Charlie. I can't, there's so much winning. I can't keep track. <laughs> you are tired I'm of tired. winning. I'm tired of it. <laughs> so I can say not quite a soft surrender, but, but certainly that is the impulse. And I think the pro-life, movement and activists will prevent it from being fully realized, but that's that's what Republicans at the national level clearly uh, will want to do. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com, your way around our meter paywall, your way if you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads, especially the most obnoxious ads that might be distracting you and annoying you when you're trying to read our content, your way to get deeper into the National Review community by commenting on articles and blog posts, if you're into that, by getting invited to exclusive events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So it's a great deal all around. We have great first-time offers running pretty much at any given moment. So if you haven't signed up already, please Consider doing so and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. Plus. I guarantee you won't regret it. So, MBD, we have a rather stunning leak of these classified documents related to Ukraine war. There's a lot of speculation, you know, is this some sort of information operation? You know, pro-Russian people got them and leaked them, pro-Ukraine people got them and leaked them. Uh, but they do suggest uh, that the, the war has uh, n- not been going as well as some public statements by elected officials would lead you to believe and that we are, you know, he- heavily uh, involved, the West, in uh, helping run this war what do you make of them yeah well i mean listen i'm smart enough and clever enough to feel totally vindicated with every secret revealed 
I'm sure people who disagree with me feel the same. Um, these are really stunning leaks and embarrassing leaks for the United States in a lot of ways. Now, people have been trying to warn the public that the war long-term wasn't going in Ukraine's way since, you know, uh, Rice and Gates wrote an editorial in January this year saying that time wasn't on Ukraine's side. Um, it's just that this one is, has a much more frank assessment of the implausibility of a spring counteroffensive. Uh, it confirms the reporting and, and the, the column that Chris Caldwell wrote in the New York Times showing that, you know, in a sense, by creating a NATO interoperable military in Ukraine, the only way to run that is with the U.S. heavy U.S. involvement on the intelligence targeting uh, and after action report side, which is what this revealed. I think, I think if you look at these documents, I mean, at one point I thought maybe the Biden administration was leaking this just to like begin letting the reality sink in that, uh, this, this could be the second NATO funded army in two years to be destroyed. Um, and you know, to reset expectations accordingly, but there's just too much embarrassing for the United States. I mean, we, we basically have, you know, it's revealed in the documents that the U.S. is basically going to do a PSYOP on Israel to try to cajole them to giving weapons to Ukraine. Also reveals that the Mossad is, is behind these domestic protests in Israel, which is a shocking bit of news in itself. Um, it's, you know, it's the, the reports have totally embarrassed the South Korean government. Uh, which is denying everything in the leaks and saying that the whole document is a fabrication because um, it shows that, you know, we're, we're cajoling them into kicking in the Ukraine effort. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, I think it's humiliating. Um, and, you know, the Biden administration should be embarrassed again. Like I know it's a joke to say it, but like, what is our what are, what are our intelligence people doing that we keep suffering these catastrophic leaks? I mean, sh should we actually just move all this stuff into Joe Biden's garage and Mar-a-Lago because clearly intelligence is safer in those places than it is in the hands of our military and our deep state? Um, yeah, I, I, the total alarmist reading of these of the the leaks though is that American hegemony is rapidly coming to an end, right? I mean, that our allies are not so secretly working against us. Egypt is selling rockets, you know, selling stuff to Russia on the side. Israel wants no as little involvement and is playing both sides against each other. South Korea is upset. Meanwhile, in the news, China is brokering a peace deal between Saudi Arabia, our ally, and the Houthis in Yemen, and ending that war. Um, and on the other headline, you know, that we're going to get to in a minute, Macron is talking with Z and basically swearing off being on the side of America in a Chinese uh, U.S. conflict. Like, if you totaled all of that up together and just put that on a plate uh, of news from the future, you would be thinking that the American-led world order is crumbling. Um and that's, that is what it looks like under Joe Biden. So, Jim, we've all known, I think, basically two things. One, incredible 
bravery and devotion and purpose on the part of the Ukrainian people fighting back against this Russian invasion. At the same time, their supply and arms being held together, that whole effort's being held together with, with bailing wire. And what these documents highlight is just the perilous state of air defenses in Ukraine. I mean, it's astonishing we're more than a year into this and the Russians have not established air superiority, which, you know, a lot of people think that that would have been a matter of, of days. You know, here, here we are and they, they still haven't done it. But it, uh, Ukraine has had to, to use a lot of, uh, of missiles and has been relying on Soviet systems. And not many people have the, um, the ammunition for those systems, you know, a couple places that, that we've been really uh, pressuring but have been recalcitrant and we don't make that stuff. So then there's this, this urgent effort to get them more um, modern air defense weapons. But these documents make it clear, you know, if there's a slip here and it doesn't happen, just the, the Russians will just be able to hit Ukrainian forces on the ground at will and there's not going to be a spring offensive. Yeah, uh, it's worth noting. Remember when, you know, oh, the Biden administration is sending a Patriot missile battery to Ukraine? That missile battery is not set up yet. It is not working yet. It is not ready to be deployed. It's on its way. Now, that was months ago, right? We have been doing this pattern month after month in which the Ukrainians say, hey, we are taking heavy fire here. We're desperate. We really need weapons system X. And the Biden administration and some apparently someone in the Pentagon will say, oh, yeah, we don't think you really need that. What you really need is Y and Z. And the Ukrainian response is like, yeah, well, we like Y and Z, but we'd really like to have X. And then some months will go by. Ukrainians will die. Thankfully, more Russians will die. But by and large, you know, Ukraine takes a pounding. And then after a couple months, the Biden administration basically, oh, you know what? I guess you're right. I guess he needed X all along. And of course, it gives, we send it to them late. And of course, getting this to the Ukrainians and getting them trained on it able to operate it is taking significant amounts of time. And people have been pointing this out for months now. And the message from Joe Biden is always, we're doing fine. We will stand by Ukraine as long as it takes. And uh, as I laid out in today's morning, Jolt, you know, when uh, Biden went to Kiev, he, you know, all this kind of happy talk, you know, uh, you're succeeding against all and every expectation except your own. We have every confidence that you're going to continue to prevail. Well, apparently our intelligence estimate is not that the Ukrainians are going to continue to prevail. A lot of worries about the counteroffensive, which, by the way, like it's, you know, April 11th that it hasn't happened yet. Um, very hard to launch a counteroffensive if you don't have enough ammunition to shoot at the other guys. And that's – people have been warning about this for, for weeks and months now. And it's very – you know, we've been warning about our stockpiles here in the United States. We've been complaining the U Europeans aren't getting enough over there. Apparently those tanks, you know, the the uh, they're going to get there 2024. All, a whole bunch of this stuff has been, you know, building for months. All this does is put it right there in black and white, confirming all of these uh, reports that have been floating around out there for a while. Uh, I, I've heard some people speculating is, you know, like there was one document that apparently had the, uh, the original document had, you know, Ukraine's got one level of, you know, admittedly pretty bad level of casualties because the Ukrainians have fewer guys to start with um, and the Russians have higher ones and somebody had altered that to basically flip them. Um, Russia's having, Russia's got a whole bunch of casualties. There's no two ways about that. Uh, but the general, you know, aspect, other than that, the administration is acting like the like these uh, documents are real. Mm -hmm. um, well, they, so in this yeah. David Ignatius column, there was an official yeah. basically said they were real. Uh, 
Go ahead and be Dean, then we'll get Charlie in. I was just going to say, there's also, I mean, I think the hardest reality that these documents reveal is that there is not, like, I think a lot of hawkish Republicans want there to be an, uh, an easy policy solution, like, all right, well, let's just send them this, or let's just send them that, finally. And what these documents reveal is that there's really not much more to send, right, without cutting into your own needed defense uh, uh, stockpiles. And in fact, that we're like, every month the war goes on, we're, we're falling years behind in production. Um, so like there, there's a problem of innumeracy, uh, at the bottom of this and it's not, it, it desperately calls for a dramatic expansion of the military industrial base yes. in the United States going forward. That, that but should that's be the industrial policy that everyone agrees on. But that is not, but that is not going to happen in time to save Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, I mean, we're basically saying that the 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 war is going to end up in some kind of loss for Ukraine, like a a serious one. And in fact, in just a week a week ago, I mean, Zelensky was already floating flags saying, "If we lose these next battle, my society is tired, is going to be tired, and is not going to continue to support full scale war." And he invited Xi Jinping to come to Ukraine to begin talking. <laughs> Um, and so we're going to be faced with this, this very serious problem of all of our policy intellectuals, all of the courtiers around the executive have talked this whole effort up as this revival of NATO. And what it, what it revealed was NATO's tanks don't work. The leopards don't, don't even function. It's the second NATO army to be destroyed NATO-funded army to be destroyed in two years. This is a huge, huge embarrassing, and in my opinion, completely needless embarrassment for the West. And it's going to make everyone's calculations from Rio de Janeiro to Indonesia change about the future of world leadership. And like I said, this, this was, we did not need this. So Charlie, <coughs> MBD mentioned earlier what he considers an, an indication of that. We have Macron and this trip to China and comes back on a plane and makes comments about how, you know, we, we don't want to get involved with, uh, with the U.S. and Taiwan and worsening the, the situation there and uh, talking up this idea of uh, Europe going its, its own way, led by France, of course. And this this is... Uh, a uh, one way of looking at it. This is a very traditional French thing, right? This this has been the fantasy since De Gaulle that uh, uh, if the Americans would just recede, Europe could go its its own way. But the problem is, you know, the Germans and the, the French are so pathetic. I mean, Germany will never get to you know in 2030 will get to spending two percent of GDP on defense. So how possibly are they going to uh, go their go their own way? Yes, so foreign policy is not my area, as you know. Uh, My takeaway here was first that this reminded me of a column I wrote very early on saying, just remember everyone that what you want to happen in this war and what should happen will not inevitably be the same. Just because Ukraine is a good guy 
Just because the United States is the good guy, it doesn't mean this won't be a horrible war of attrition that Ukraine could lose. The second thing this made me think was that a lot of the criticisms and questions that have been offered up probably should not have been dismissed in quite the way that they have been. In the David Ignatius piece you mentioned, he says that in World War II, the United States converted manufacturing plants across the country to make tanks, planes, and aircraft carriers that simply overwhelmed Japan and Germany. No similar mobilization has taken place this time. Why not? Well, I think the answer to that is that the United States is not at war. The United States was not attacked, as it was in 1941. The United States has not found itself fighting on two fronts. And the United States does not believe that the entire fate of the world hangs in the balance. And if you read through this piece, and if you read through the documents, or at least if I do, I go back to a conversation we had on this podcast a few months ago. And I think, yeah, we do have to worry that we don't escalate to the point at which we are deemed to be involved. Because the coverage of this does presume that we are at war, or at least that we will continue to provide arms ad infinitum. And if we do that, then there will be a certain point at which the Russians will legitimately say, hang on, you're basically fighting. And I'm not saying that would be the wrong move. But it would be a move. And, you know, this should be a wake-up call to anyone who wants the United States to remain heavily involved that we are going to need to have a much more robust national debate about this if this is the situation on the ground and if we are considering having an industrial policy so that we can engage in this way, sending sufficient air defense systems and weapons that would prevent the parade of horribles that is laid out. I don't think anymore we can just have this being a decision that is made in Washington. And I say that as somebody who is sympathetic to those who have made the decisions and who thinks Joe Biden has largely got this right. But, you know, this is an antidote to a lot of the happy talk, to a lot of what I have perceived to be the conviction that if you put a Ukrainian flag outside of your house and you really just want it enough, that we're going to win that it's inevitable, that history will tend in our direction. I don't know if that's true. And if it is the case that we need to do more, that the Ukrainian position is this precarious, if David Ignatius is asking, why don't we have an industrial policy like we did in World War II, then actually so many of the objections that I've heard have some teeth and need to be addressed. Yeah, so for from my perspective, we need a... Uh an industrial policy with regard to our defense industrial base, even if Ukraine weren't happening. Because um, if we're getting depleted just supplying Ukraine, we're, we're out within weeks, you know, of a, a war with, with China uh, over Taiwan. But MBDX, a question to you. Macron will end up leading a more independent Europe in the years ahead. 
Yes or no? Uh, no, uh, because Macron will remain unable to convince the Germans to pay for the expenditures that would make Europe a compelling balancing power between an American-led order and a Chinese world-led order. Right? It's sort of like, you know, we could have... Eurasia and East Asia from 1984 emerging, but Eurasia will never get its act together. Uh, it's always going to be dependent on America or China. Jim? No, but that's more out of the flaws of Macron than about the um, in European, seemingly perpetual European instinct that when it comes to the U.S. against hostile states around the world, that there is some sort of easy middle ground that they can occupy that allows them to not spend much on defense and continue high levels of social spending. Charlie? I mean, no. How? They have no reserve currency. <laughs> they have no tech companies. They're economically moribund. They have they're no... Old. They're old. They have no political desire to play that role. They much prefer sitting under the American carapace and lobbing stones at it and its people and its leaders. So, No. Of course not. Yeah, the answer is no for all the reasons that have been mentioned. Plus, there's a huge swath of Europe that has zero interest in being led by France. This is where the the old Europe, new Europe divide that Don Rumsfeld got in so much trouble for talking about is clearly in play. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been unpacking yet more books yeah, I mean, I moved into this house three years ago, and I'm still unpacking my library um, as we build more shelves. And I'm just very happy to have recovered, actually, my my, my Ukraine books, for one, and, and most of my books on Central uh, Europe along with them. Uh, a lot of my history section finally is out into my office. And it's just like a pleasure to be among your personal library. Um, like it's, it's like a trip down memory lane and it also like literally the, the, the very physicality of the books brings to mind things that yep. like mm -hmm. lifting up an uh -huh. iPad would never do right. Like, uh, you know, suddenly, you know, uh, a whole column idea will, will be generated just by remembering the color, you know, just by seeing the cover of a book and remembering one little quote from it. Totally. And it's it's a principle of life that if you have a book packed away, that is a book you will need. Yes. At, at some point. I will say, MBD, by the way, I haven't mentioned this before, but there is a box of your books in my office at NR World Headquarters. I don't know why or how it got there. <laughs> There's some some uh, history of some foreign country, I forget what it is, in a bottle of liquor at the top of this, uh, <laughs> top of this book. So you might want to reclaim it. Uh, for yeah. Jim Garrity. As you mentioned earlier, you're on vacation and unplugged from the news for a while. You know, Rich, I just like to imagine that in your office, it wasn't labeled Michael's Books, but you just looked at it, you saw the titles, you saw the model, <laughs> this must be Michael's box. Of books. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, look, you know, I tried to, you know, stay away from the news on my vacations, but uh, visiting my parents and, and hanging out, you know, my, they love to have Fox News on, you, you know, you pick up the Wall Street Journal every day, you're still aware of it. And I picked a fantastic week to not follow the news. And I genuinely believe that um, obviously there is an inherent bias towards the negative in news. The old saying that, you know, you don't write stories about all the airplanes that 
land safely, but you do write the stories about the airplanes that crash. Um, I would not say to listeners of the editor's podcast or readers of National Review to go on a vacation from news. I'm just going to say, because obviously it's not in our interest to you to do that. On the other hand, if you choose to do so, I understand. Don't make it too long. Come back to us quickly. But I do think that there is something about the relentless day after day, this is terrible, and doesn't this stink, and oh, isn't this horrible, and oh, yeah, the sheer amount of news that re- represents. Can you believe what this crazy person has said? I don't think any of this is good for us psychologically and emotionally and uh, as citizens, socially, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, detached for a couple of days, and it was much needed, and I will go back to being my usual snarky mm-hmm. self very soon. Charlie? I have a not light item, a dark item, in fact, and that has been the weather in Florida for the last four or five days, which has been gray and rainy and oppressive. Uh, As a born and bred Englishman, I am all too accustomed to that feeling that the sky is nine feet above my head. And it is one of the things that I like the most about the United States, that it is just so sunny and light and bright as a kid visiting Florida and California and Arizona. This impressed me. And I noticed quite quickly that it made me feel happy. And the flip side is true. I'm so down when the weather is like this. I just can't, I can't bear it. I keep looking out of the window and I feel trapped and I feel small. Mm. I need Florida back. I think I'm going to write a letter to the governor. <laughs> yeah, there, there, I was listening to some podcast, uh, History of Medieval English Kings. And of course, you know, they, they owned ha- a big chunk of France for a while there. And they'd spend half the time in Eng- England, half the time in France. I forget who it was who wrote some letter. I, I don't want to go. I don't want to go back to England. It's so damp and depressing. <laughs> so uh, uh, reason to spend, spend more time in Normandy. So I've been reading a, a wonderful book thanks to Aaron McLean's podcast. I don't know whether I've mentioned Aaron McLean's podcast. I think I, I might have at, at some point called School of War. Wonderful podcast focusing on military affairs and military history. And he had one a couple months ago with this guy named James Lacey, who used to, way back in the day, write uh, for National Review. Uh, and then became a big-time um, military uh, historian and academic, and he has a book called Rome, Strategy of Empire, that if you're all, at all interested in military history or in Rome, is uh, uh, a fascinating read. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is um, Maddie Kern's book review of Prince Harry's Spare, uh, in the April 17th issue of the magazine, um, Maddie, uh, highlights what the, uh, the Duke of Sussex reveals without intending to reveal it and, uh, says this is a betrayal of duty and ultimately of himself, uh, to put this book out. It's very good. Jim Gardy. I am really happy that Jeff Blahar has joined us um, for years. I've been enjoying his tweets. He has these uh, just witty, funny, insightful ways of looking at things. And he lives out in Chicago. And not only has this been a great time to be interested in Chicago, as they've just elected elected a left-wing mayor, uh, they're now going to be the host city for the 2024 Democratic Convention. And Jeff has written a corner post Quote, Chicago announces potential new pop-up street crime hotspot for August 2024. 
Jeff is not thrilled about the prospect of lots of Democrats coming to the already heavily Democratic uh, city of Chicago. He says it's a a great ironic choice in light of the city's uh, wide variety of problems. Uh, I am glad that Jeff is living in Chicago and keeping an eye on that city's worsening problems so that the rest of us don't have to. Charlie? I was pleased to see Robert Verbruggen in the latest issue of the magazine reviewing a book, Vote Gun, How Gun Rights Became Politicized in the United States. And this is a funny book review because Robert starts it by saying, for a gun rights supporter, that's Robert, Patrick J. Charles's Vote Gun can be a grating read. And he points out that this is an anti-gun book, except that it's an anti-gun book who's really angry at all of the victories that pro-gun people have won over the last three years. So Robert ended up enjoying it anyway, because although it's written in a despairing tone, it is nevertheless telling a story that conservatives uh, favor. So my pick is the work by our young colleague, a news reporter, Ari Bloth, on the totally insane uh, progressive ideological approach to math in Ontario. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. And we'll see you next time.